Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection Pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. We always love when people contact us or reach out to us. And that's, I want to do, it's kind of like a little public service announcement, I guess, before I begin with my guest here. But so anything that you guys have for us, you know, just reach out on Wolf Connection Pod on Instagram, email us at, I think it's podcast at wolfconnection.org. And it's just great to see the community continually involving and giving us incredible guest ideas, guests that are reaching out to us and we ultimately get to meet and who are friends with other guests of ours. So it really is just a great community. And I just, I wanted to put that out there before I welcome the guest who came through us via Instagram uh, and just message us uh, one day. And here we are on a podcast with him. So he's, he's been a wildlife photographer for about three years. He's based out of Seattle, Washington, and his photos are absolutely incredible. We're going to get into all that wonderful stuff. His name is Philip Scrimshaw. Philip, it's uh, great to meet you. Phil or Philip? What's what's the um, best way? Yeah, I go I go by Philip usually, but uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to meet you too, John. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm glad you uh, you reached out, and like I said, your photos are incredible. And thank you for making this correlation between wolves in the United States, and also you've been to Africa multiple times and photographing the African wild dog, which is also called the painted wolf, from what you were telling me. And there's similar conservation efforts going on, so I really can't wait to dive deep into that stuff. But just as we begin, just get, tell everybody where you grew up. Are you a native Washingtonian? Did you move? Where, where, where did this all uh, come from? Where did you grow up? How did everything start for you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so again, thank you so much for having me on. You know, I love your guys' work and the podcast and everything that you guys do for, you know, wolf conservation. It's it's really a pleasure to be here. But uh, yeah, so I'm, you know, born and raised in Seattle. I've been here kind of my whole life. This has kind of been my home base, you know, grew up here, went to school here. You know, this is, you know, where I've spent most of my adult life. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful area, you know, in terms of, you know, landscapes and nature and wildlife. There's so much here. Um, you know, you I'll grow up in an area where people are driving and, you know, they pull over on the side of the park and there's orca whales, you know, jumping out of the water. It's crazy. Or, you know, you're an hour outside of the city and you're on like one of the most beautiful, you know, mountains and volcanoes like you've ever seen in the world. So it's it's a really amazing place that I've been able to call home. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, you know, very good to me and I, I love, I love being here. So it's, uh, it's really great. And I feel kind of that natural beauty has kind of steered me in the direction to where I'm at right now in life. Yeah. I saw that in your bio. I was doing a little bit of research on you, uh, prior to this and it really seemed like you said it in your bio. So I'm sort of quoting it from that, but you're a typical nine to five and it seems as though you had this bug, this urge, and obviously living in a beautiful area, it gives you other opportunities or other avenues to where maybe to make a living or to find your niche. And it seemed as though wildlife photography just was the thing or it just, what was the bug? How did that happen initially? Again, you talked about just the incredible places in and around Seattle and just Washington state in general. What was the the instance or the event? Was there something that you can point to where you tort- you took the the other curvature on the road as opposed to staying on the straight and narrow? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so I'm, I'm sure, you know, most people you know, work a typical nine to five desk job. And, and that's great. And I, I've definitely, you know, been doing that for you know most of my adult life and my career. And it's, it's great. But uh, I think a big catalyst for me, and I think a catalyst for a lot of people, um, you know, you, like you said, I've been doing this for three years. It was the pandemic. 
Um, and I think, you know, as that became very serious and kind of the global changing event that we all kind of experienced, um, you know, it really put into perspective, you know, what are your priorities in life? What do you want to be doing? You know, tomorrow isn't necessarily guaranteed. Is there something that you would be regretting if you didn't get a chance to try and do? Um, so for me, you know, working at home and just being at home, eventually what I would kind of do is I, I would just play like nature, like animal or like landscape videos, like in the background as I would work, just kind of being, you know, my white noise a little bit and just like, oh, like that's really pretty. Um, and as, you know, I was watching these videos, you know, during the pandemic, I was like, you know, this is really cool to see in a video, but wouldn't it be really cool to actually go there and see those things for real, like in person and kind of realizing like, hey, you know, if I want to go do that, the only way it's going to happen is if I go make it happen, if I go do it. Um, so yeah, I, I was remembering that I was reading an article once that, you know, a lot of different, you know, places are so dependent on tourism to fund, you know, kind of the conservation of, you know, wildlife in different areas around the world. And, you know, because of the pandemic, once all those tourists went away, um, there is a significant threat and jeopardy of, you know, some of this wildlife potentially going extinct because there was no rangers there to protect people. There was no income, um, you know, for some of these national parks. And so it was like, hey, you know, there's a chance that, you know, these animals may not be here, you know, in 10, 20 years. If I don't go see them now, they may not, you know, be around. I, there may be a situation where I don't get to tell my kids that, you know, you can go to a park and see an elephant because the elephants may all be gone. They may have all been poached. Um, so it really just kind of stirred that little urgency in myself to kind of go out and, and go see these places on my own. I mean, what was that first experience like? So obviously when you when you make a huge leap like that and you, I guess, throw caution to the wind, I guess is what people would say. Yeah. But it really just seemed like there was this deep down urge inside of you and this this feeling that was there to go. And like you said, it's the conservation aspect. And, and I think we all saw this too when we realize anytime the government shuts down to a degree, even if it's for a couple of weeks, we really see the the toll that it takes on our public lands, on our national parks. Um, people I think saw like when it was shut down and Joshua Tree got, you know, completely filled with garbage and litter. It was just, it was a bad situation. So I hear you with the conservation aspect and I love that that's part of your your drive to go do these things. When you were in Africa for the first time, what was that like? And I, I've never been and I've heard beautiful stories about it. But when you get onto those, I guess you, you took a safari or what was the, what was the first experience like and how did that sit with you to then really take the next huge, huge leap, which was buying the equipment and, and doing all the things you need to do for photography? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I just kind of signed up for, you know, your stereotypical safari that, you know, many people around the world have done and that's not to, you know, trivialize it. It's, it's obviously a, you know, a very significant type of travel. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. And, you know, I, I get there and you're like, whoa, like I'm about as far away, you know, from anywhere as I've ever been before in my life. You know, Africa, we say Africa as if it's, you know, kind of this one place, but it's, it's, you know, the second biggest continent on earth. And, um, in many ways, you know, the places that you go, there are as remote as remote gets. Um, you know, I've been to, you know, places like Yellowstone, but, you know, I could drive an hour away and I'd reach civilization. There are places in Africa you go, you're not finding people for days. Um, so it's, you know, once you're there, you, it just kind of hits you like, wow, like I'm in, I'm in Africa. Um, and you know, once you, you know, kind of get in your, your first safari and you're kind of going out there and you're like, oh my gosh, like that's, that's like a giraffe that's, I've only seen those in zoos and now I'm here and I'm seeing them. Um, and it, it's just, it's emotionally, it's overwhelming. And 
initially, you know, when I, when I first planned that trip, I thought, okay, you know, I'll get a, a camera just to have some nice pictures. Cause of, you know, who doesn't want to have nice pictures of, you know, animals from a safari. And so I, I kind of bought like a very like entry level camera and lens and thought, okay, this will be kind of nice. And as I was kind of going, I, I was realizing, you know, as the days were going on on that first initial trip, I was like, wow, like this is, this is kind of addicting, like getting to the position for like the shot. And I, I never really thought much about photography outside of, you know, my iPhone before, but, you know, as I was kind of doing this, I was like, wow, like this is, this is something else. You know, I've always loved animals, but the photography side of thing, just being able to paint a scene and, and capture these landscapes and these animals inside of them, it's, there's just no place better in the world to do that. And in my opinion, than you know, all across Africa. So um, after that trip, I, I kind of realized like, oh, like this is, this is the direction I want to be going. You know, this is what I feel like I'm, I'm meant to be doing. Um, and, you know, I had, you know, my guides were saying, you know, like, hey, like, if you want to do this, you know, you gotta, you gotta commit to it. You gotta make sure that this is something that you really want to do. And um, since, you know, that first trip I've, I've been hooked and now I'm just finding new ways to get back and, um, you know, obviously getting new gear and, you know, uh, these trips are few and far between. So you want to make sure that if you're going, you're doing it right. And not everybody has, you know, tons of time to do it. And, you know, I still work my nine to five. So I, I want to make sure that when I'm going, I'm, I'm doing it right. Because that first experience was just, it was magical. And now it's, it's an addiction. It's a bug. So that's, that's a good bug to have. I mean, when you're, when you're taking photos and obviously there's a connection with Yellowstone and, and that, and, and those animals there, the wolves and the bears and, and everything like that. And the moose, because I've seen some of your moose Thank photos you. and they're incredible. Uh, and then the, the, the photos you take in Africa, what is your, because you said there was some stage, like, do you attempt to stage, not stage, are you looking to set up in certain spots and waiting for certain things to happen or do the, the animals sort of just come to you? Because we've noticed when we talk to a lot of the photographers, you, they just sort of are sometimes a lot of these pictures that happen. They're like, this is the greatest photo I've ever took. And it happened when I was driving on the side of the road and then, you know, a wolf popped up and it was there. And so what is the, what's the, do you have a strategy? Is it just sort of be where you are, see what happens, what unfolds, where, what's sort of, I guess, your way of going about getting the photos that you get? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'll definitely say, you know, I've, I've had a couple of those, I guess you could call them lucky encounters. Um, but I'm, I'm more of the mindset that luck is really a combination of, you know, both preparation and opportunity. Um, so obviously if there's a scenario where I see an animal and I think, okay, like this is where this animal is, this is what I know about it. Where can I put myself in a position to capture a great photo? Um, and so there'll be times where, you know, I'm sitting at a sighting for three, four five hours waiting for something to happen because I, I know that this could be a great photo opportunity. Um, rarely do I, I kind of stumble across things because in, in those moments you kind of get the adrenaline running and you kind of get unprepared. You're like, Oh my gosh, what do I do? And you're flipping with your camera and your settings. And so, right. um, those situations I, I try to avoid putting myself in because I think, you know, we can all get a little overwhelmed and make mistakes. And I've made plenty of mistakes and missed lots of, you know, great photos out there, which I still kick myself over, but every photographer does. Um, but yeah, I, I, I generally just, you know, try and put myself, you know, physically in a position to capture a good photo, whether that be the good landscape or, I think the other big thing is kind of knowing your subjects and knowing animal behavior. Um, I think that is probably the single most important thing in wildlife photography. I know not everybody would necessarily agree with that statement, but if you know, for example, you know, hey, this lion over here just ate 
and they're pretty tired, but there's, you know, a little creek over here. Eventually they're going to want to come down and drink, you know, after a big meal, they're going to want to come down and drink. So you put yourself in position, you wait it out, maybe half an hour, an hour, that line's going to come down to drink. Boom. There's your shot. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of preparation and just knowing where to be at the right time and, and giving yourself the time to not be unprepared or like get caught off guard. Yeah. Ethically, you know, and, and where uh, I'm sure it's, it seems like it's ingrained with everybody that we've spoken to. And I, I love that this community is, is very supportive. Actually, uh, Ben Bloom was, was tagging me in something that you were coming on here and he was like, this is great. You know, they basically said nice on the story that I posted for us that you were coming on here. Where is the, uh, I'm sure you know, how do you feel ethically with the photos that you're taking? I'm sure you're, you're taking into consideration the, the well being of the animal and all that. I mean, where do you, do you try and impart some of no, some of that knowledge onto other photographers? Are there things that you try to teach other people? Um, or obviously you're still learning as it's only been three years right. or so. We are, we're always learning different things, but ethically, how does that, how does everything uh, strike you as, as you go out and do all these expeditions and, and Yellowstone, Africa and all these other places? Yeah. Yeah. I think ethics is kind of the hardest thing that a photographer has to balance because in a lot of ways, we're all trying to get the shot, you know, because as, as a photographer, there's no better feeling than coming away with, you know, a once in a lifetime photo that nobody else has and you feel super great about it. Um, but at the same time, we have to remember the wildlife part of that equation, um, as well. And obviously keeping their well-being into effects or into consideration and making sure that we're not stressing them out. We're not putting undue pressure on them. Um, and, and it's a tough, it's a tough thing to consider. Um, I always generally try and put myself in a situation where I'm not stressing out the animals. Um, I'll, I'll admit, and I think a lot of other people admit sometimes we push a little too close. And, um, I remember there was one instance, um, there was like a lioness, she was out in some bushes and she had cubs and we kind of got in a position to maybe catch a little glimpse of the cubs. And, and then she kind of growled at us and kind of snarled and was very unhappy that we got that close. And it's like, okay, Hey, like we crossed the line. Okay. That's, that's fair. That's on us. And then, you know, just kind of back up and give her her space. And, um, I think it's, it's definitely an issue that you see happen a lot in Africa. Um, I think that there's a lot, um, more people coming in tourist wise and, specifically photographer wise. And so there's a lot of people coming in and they all, you know, spending lots of money and they're on the safari and they want to come away with the great shots. And so sometimes you see these videos on YouTube of just like 20, 30 cars, you know, in a circle surrounding animals, just trying to get a good photo. And you just kind of sit there and you're like, man, like this is just, this is just wrong. And you just want to just leave and not be part of it. So I, I generally try and avoid situations like that where, you know, there's so much pressure on animals. And again, in Yellowstone, you know, everybody can attest to what happens, you know, when somebody sees like a grizzly bear, you know, and then suddenly it's a bear jam. Right. You know, you have 50 cars and everybody's out with, you know, their cameras and their gear and, and rangers try and facilitate those, you know, situations as much as they can. But um, we also have to remember, okay, you know, if this bear has cubs and she wants to cross the road, we don't want to be in a situation where we're causing her stress or we're impeding her path or anything like that. And um, especially so for wolves as well, when, you know, you have 50 people on a ridge line and you see the wolf wants to cross the road, maybe don't go and, you know, park your car right in the middle of the way where the, where the wolf wants to cross. Mm. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, a fine line to, to balance. And I try and be as ethical as possible. I never bait anything. I never, um, you know, play sounds and to get a reaction. I know some people have done that and that's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, just try and give as much respect and space to the wildlife as possible. No photo is worth, you know, causing them stress. I feel like that gives kind of like a black mark on your photo and yeah, you can show it off, but you're in the back of your head. You're always going to know like, yeah, I, I pushed a little too far just to get that shot. And I don't really think that's worth it, in my opinion. And that's fair. I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, and again, we're, we're talking about things that 
there, there's a lot of people out there that are doing it and um, in terms of taking photo- in terms of taking photos I'm not saying people that are that are baiting and things like that but it, it's good to know that like I, I said this with pretty much every photographer we've had on it's great that there's this again community there's sort of a watchdog type attitude where people are looking around making sure that trying to be good stewards of people and also the you know the animals first and foremost and then the people that are there just to really communicate with them and say hey let's let's give the animals space to understand hey there are some cues that they're giving us let's let's back off or do whatever we need to do so it really just seems like the photographer community at large it seems at least from the ones we've spoken to that really that is a, a hardcore um, lesson and informational uh, driver that they give to everybody out there is that hey we're going to be ethic ethic you know, we're going to do this ethically, whether we get the shot we want or not is really sort of secondhand. So it's, it's good to hear that that's, it just continues everywhere. Um, I want to talk about the painted dogs or the painted wolves that you mentioned, and this will obviously correlate to these, the wolves in Yellowstone that you also take photos of. So just give everybody, I guess, a background on, is it the painted dog or the painted wolf? I know I saw both things online. What is it typically called, uh, in Africa? Is it mostly painted? Dark? Yeah. Yeah. So um, again, there's, there's kind of a bunch of different names that have gone by, you know, African wild dogs, you know, painted dogs, right. painted wolves, cape hunting dogs. Um, I think kind of the, the trend now is just trying to refer to them as painted wolves. Um, generally something like wild dog. And, and that's what they're more commonly known as. They, that has a bit more of a negative connotation and they have historically kind of been viewed more as like varmint. I mean, in that, you know, sort of negative light. So it's, they're going under a little bit of like an image rehab. Um, and so I think there's more of a concerted effort to call them painted wolves, but I'll, I'll admit I, you know, colloquially will refer to them as African wild dogs as well. So um, there's no real right or wrong answer. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just, I guess, for the purpose of this conversation, we can obviously just refer to them as painted wolves and um, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, no, they're very cool. What's the, what are the, efforts like, I guess, conservationally, the, the things that you've, you know, because you brought this up in your message uh, to us and it, it really stuck with me that clearly there's this correlation here. What are sort of, what's the plight of the of the painted wolf over there and why is it treated like vermin? What's, if you have a little bit or any history about it and what the deal is, tell tell everybody who's listening here because I I didn't do that much uh, digging on it. So I figured I'd give you the you the floor to uh, explain it a little bit more if you if you have the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I said they're, they're, they are referred to as painted wolves, but they're not genetically um, related to the wolves that we know. Right. So they're not Canis lupus by any means. They're kind of their own genus called Lycaon pictus, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, kind of Greek in land for like painted wolf-like creature. Um, so they're, they're a very unique kind of subspecies of canine, um, but they're, they're incredible. Um, they're just, you know, amazing animals. Um, Again, like wolves, they kind of face some of the same persecutions that, you know, we see um, here in the United States and Canada, um, where generally, you know, they have a tendency to be viewed in a negative light for going after like livestock, um, particularly in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of people who live on kind of the the borders of, you know, these natural wilderness areas where these animals live, um, they're frequently coming in contact with wildlife. And so a lot of times you, you have conflict between those two different groups and painted wolves are, are very much an easy target, um, you know, cause they're not, you know, big and threatening like a lion and they're not like a giant elephant or something. They're, they're very, you know, they're kind of small, they're kind of in your 70 pound range. So they're like a very big dog. They're not quite as big as a wolf. They're slightly smaller, but um, you know, kind of that size makes them <clears throat> relatively easy targets um, for human wildlife conflict. 
Um, the other big thing about them is that they just require huge amounts of space. You know, they're pack animals like wolves and, um, you know, you'll have packs of, you know, 10, 12. Sometimes, you know, you get, you get up to packs of like 20 or 30, like some of the big packs that we see in Yellowstone. And when you have packs those big, they just need lots of space. Um, and the problem with that is, you know, um, Africa is currently going under a huge amount of population growth. And I say Africa, you know, kind of as a continent, but, you know, there, there are individual countries which are seeing huge growth. So like Kenya, you know, that first country that I visited on safari, um, they have about 50 million people in the country right now. By 2050, that's going to double. So they're going to double in population in the next 30 years, which is like a crazy thing to think about because where are all those new people going to live? They can't all just live in the city and, you know, skyrise apartments. They're going to spread out much like, you know, people, you know, did in population growth in the United States. So, you know, those, those people are suddenly going to be living closer and closer on the edges of these wilderness areas. And a lot of times people think, oh, all these animals, they just live in their national parks and they're fine and they're happy in there. And reality is that's not true. Most wildlife doesn't live, don't live in national parks. They kind of live in these, you know, these natural areas where people live. And so you have all these people suddenly moving out into areas and suddenly you're going to be encroaching on wildlife that has historically been there. And as those people, as that population grows, those people are going to need to eat. So that's, you know, that's going to cause more people needing to raise cattle, raise goats, raise chickens. And those are the sorts of, you know, prey that are easy pickings for painted wolves. And so um, that's going to put them in, in huge conflict with people. So right now their population is kind of estimated about five, 6,000, which is a huge drop. That's almost halved in the last 10 plus years. Um, so there are not a lot of them left. They are they're very endangered at this point. And unfortunately, if conservation efforts aren't successful, there's a very good chance that they could go extinct within our lifetime. So um, they're, they're, they're teetering on the edge here. Luckily, there are some great groups out there, you know, doing work. And obviously, there are lots of great national parks all across the continent that are providing safe spaces for them. But it's, it's a constant battle. Um, and they are constantly coming in contact with people. And as populations grow, it's just going to put even more and more pressure. And as climate change, you know, forces more people to make, make drastic decisions about their lifestyles. And it's just, it's a recipe for, for disaster in a lot of ways, unless people can continue to like conserve and protect these areas. What are the efforts that are going on there? Because I don't know I, I, the logistics, the politics. I know every country is different. Every continent, it really continent can be different in terms of that and the countries inside those continents. What is, what's happening in those wilderness areas? I know you said there were conservation groups. Is there active policy that is, is there a list similar to kind of what the ESA is? Obviously we talk, we, we know about the plight of elephants and like the really large, you know, lions, tigers, all these big animals uh, that used to be, tigers not so much in Africa, but right. there's a lot of African wildlife that have obviously been pushed to the brink of extinction that have been threatened and endangered for such a very long time. Are they underneath some of those protections? And like you said, there was obviously worry about poaching with, the, with, with elephants, with rhinos and all of that. Is there similar issues with painted wolves, with poaching, with fur, anything like that that's going on in Africa? Is it similar to that? Yeah. So, um, like most kind of big game, it, it, you don't, you're not allowed to hunt, you know, painted wolves. So there, there's not, you know, kind of that battle that we have, you know, here in the States as well with, you know, our current wolves where people want to necessarily hunt them. They are, they are by law protected. So you can't mm -hmm. just kill them. But again, enforcement of those sorts of things can be a little tricky. Um, kind of the biggest things that generally, you know, catch them, you know, when they're approaching on community lands and suddenly a farmer sees a painted wolf, 
you know, if he says, all right, I'm, you know, I'm going to lay out a poison carcass or something and hope that maybe, you know, the wolf will come by and eat the carcass and then get poisoned. I mean, it's very hard, you know, police wise to prove that sort of thing happened. And again, enforcement of some of these, you know, protections can be kind of spotty depending on the areas that you're in. They're very rural areas. So um, it, it can be a little tricky, obviously, um, you know, the big threats from people come, you know, from you know, poisoning is kind of a, a big tactic that people do. Snaring is probably the most indiscriminate um, way of that these animals can get killed at times. Um, a lot of times bush people will set out snares in order to catch bush meat, you know, a, a, an impala or a zebra or something so that they can, you know, they can hunt it and then they can use that to feed their family. So they're not necessarily even targeting a painted wolf, but it doesn't matter because if one comes by and gets caught in that snare, I mean, he's done for. There's nothing that you can really do. Um, so it's it's not necessarily always targeted, um, but it's very hard to enforce um, kind of, you know, those laws and those protections depending on, you know, where the area is. And I mean, the big thing that's really going to kind of change that mindset is just education with and support of local communities and teaching them, hey, you know, if you lose a goat to a painted wolf, don't go out and shoot it. See if there's some sort of way that maybe, you know, the government can reimburse you or maybe we can come up with some sort of education system where we say, okay, you know, they're going to go after your livestock. Maybe can we construct a, a livestock, you know, pen or something that will prevent them from getting in there. So then your animals are safe at night. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, so there's, you know, different conservation groups that are out there providing, you know, different sorts of solutions. And ultimately it does kind of come down to education and, and teaching, you know, kind of these local communities that, Hey, these aren't necessarily the, you know, the big bad wolf that you, you've taught them out to be, or, you know, kind of the varmint that's going after your animals. Um, they're just, they're complex animals that are kind of just struggling to survive in the same way that everyone is. And they're competing for the limited amount of resources in the same way that humans are. Um, so I, I think community outreach and education is kind of the biggest way that people can kind of support conservation efforts for them. I mean, when you do that, because, because again, some of your photos that you have of, of these animals are, are really beautiful and they, they look incredible. Is that part of the way that you, you yourself or even some of these other groups are trying to get that information across? Is that, again, like it seems as though they're very opportunistic, just like wolves are, right? They're going to, if I think somebody was saying something to the effect that, you know, if you look at, you know, if there's dinner sort of just sitting there for you and there's not a whole lot of effort that goes into it, we're going to take that meal over the meal that we have to go and hunt. And it really just seems that that's a lot of, you know, predators are opportunistic. They they have to eat, and so these are. It seems like a lot of the same parallels that we see here in the states, especially when you're talking about the snaring and trapping, right? Because it's usually indiscriminate killing. We never know what they're going to get, especially here in the states. I'm sure you know this. Obviously, being in and around Yellowstone, whenever you go, that you know, domestic dogs. You know, sometimes people get caught in these traps. Sometimes you know, cougars and bobcats, all these other animals get caught in these snares when you're trying to search for a certain animal. And to see that it's, and you would think that it's, I guess, a global issue too, because there is hunting and trapping probably everywhere. And just to see that these painted wolves are getting the same sort of treatment that our wolves here in the United States or in, and in Canada are getting, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to really see that that's kind of the way it goes. Um, and so with education information, what are these groups doing? Are they, are they holding town halls? Are they doing, and then that's if you know this, I don't know. I'm just, I know I'm uh, asking these questions, but you let me know what you can answer. Um, are, again, like I say, you know, pamphlets, is it information sessions? Is it, 
just people going door to door? How are, how are they trying to combat this rural urban? And I say that just because I can relate it to here in the United States in Africa and these individuals who are raising livestock for people to eat and helping them with coexistence measures. Is that something that's on the table, building fencing lights, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think obviously getting their message out there is probably the single most important thing that, you know, us as photographers that we can do. Um, you know, I share my photos and a lot of times people are like, I've never heard of this animal before. I've never even seen this animal before. I mean, like I said, there's only between five or 6,000 left of them. So it's not unheard of for even people who live in these communities to have never seen one before um, in their entire lives. There's just so few left. Um, and so obviously, you know, when people, if a farmer sees one, he may think, oh, wait, what's that weird looking hyena thing? And, or, you know, that kind of looks like a jackal. Like, what is that? They don't always necessarily know how to approach it. Is it a threat to me? Is it dangerous? Can it kill me like a lion? Or is it, you know, kind of something that will just be scared away by humans? And, um, so obviously, you know, getting, you know, their information via photography is, is very important to me. And, um, if I can show that to people around here as well, um, in the States and, you know, my audience around the world as well. Um, those people suddenly become educated on, you know, these animals and they can, you know, tell their friends and they can tell their friends and suddenly you tell, you know, a very wealthy friend who may be able to help fund some conservation work. And um, it, it, it kind of just goes around. And the reality is, is like you said, everybody kind of knows about the plight of like elephants and rhinos, millions and millions of dollars go into, you know, their sort of conservation. There's very limited amount of conservation money that's then allocated to painted wolves just because they don't get, you know, the big sort of draw that some of these other animals do or their plight isn't necessarily quite so um, open. You know, people will hunt an elephant, you know, for a tusk or something and then to sell it to a black market, you know, dealer in the Far East. And, you know, that makes us all very sad because we kind of think, well, what a waste. Why would you, you know, kill a beautiful animal for just some fake artwork that there's just, there's no reason for it. But it's a little bit harder when you talk about a painted wolf and you say, why would you kill something for, you know, going after livestock? It's like, well, suddenly that conversation gets a little bit more, I don't want to say justified, but you can understand a little bit more. You can understand, hey, you know, people are killing them for a reason. There's conflict here. And it's that debate is a little bit more nuanced. So um, being able to, you know, uh, educate different people and as well as, you know, educating local, local communities about these animals and how they can coexist with them, I think it's kind of the, the best thing that we as photographers can do. And, um, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a biologist. I'm not, a, you know, a researcher or anything. But with the limited, you know, um, experience and exposure that I've had to them, I, I definitely, I understand their plight and I want to be able to share that with as many people as possible and hopefully with enough eyes on it um, that can kind of help make a difference. No, I, I agree. And I think that's what we need to do is really try and find these solutions and be, really find ourselves in the middle of these conversations. And we, we've talked about this a lot. I'm sure that you've you've heard on our on our podcast is that this is, trying to find these solutions and really being able to transfer this information to everybody and to make sure that everyone has access to the right information, the information that is from everybody so that these conclusions can be made in a rational way and to make sure that we are all able to coexist on this planet with the resources that are here. And as those resources begin to dwindle, we need to be able to figure out how to make sure that these animals specifically are able to coexist with us, uh, being the you know the top of the food chain, top of the top of the line here in, in a lot of ways. When you when you get these photos, because I'm just I'm scrolling through the one the three the three that you sent me the painted wolf. What's the how do you set up for this? Are the, are they are they skittish like wolves? Are they 
like wolves in the United States, are they fairly habituated to humans coming through on safari? What is their nature that you've been able to see in the limited time that you've been there? And you being able to not only get the photos of them, but really dive into their plight as much as you have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'll definitely say they they interact with each other very similarly to, you know, the wolves that I've seen, you know, in Yellowstone and different areas. Um, but they're they're not quite as afraid of people. Um, and I say that kind of with an asterisk because generally the way that you view wildlife in Africa, at least, is you view them from the safety of a, of a vehicle. So you never really get out of your vehicle. Right. So as far as the wildlife is concerned, they don't really see humans in the vehicle they just kind of see all right it's this weird metal box that moves and yeah it's kind of right next to us but whatever it doesn't really do anything Mm -hmm. um and obviously that process has taken you know years and years of habituating kind of these animals to vehicles and making them you know feel very comfortable around us there are certainly areas you know across the continent where um they don't see as many vehicles and just the sight of one can make them very skittish and then suddenly you know they'll kind of run off and good luck finding them because once they're gone they're gone right um but at least in my experience the areas that i've, I've visited I've, I've um seen packs that are very kind of used to people um i'll say the caveat with that is the second that you get out of your vehicle if you do if you're in an area where you're um comfortable doing that i remember kind of the the sighting where i took most of my photos where i sent you um we were in a vehicle and my guy got out briefly to check out something and he, from a bush, I just heard a bark, almost like a, almost like a domestic dog bark. And it, it's just the weirdest sound. You're just like, what is that? What, why would a dog be barking? And then you turn and you look and you realize there's a whole pack of wolves right there underneath the bush. Wow. And they saw a person. And as soon as they saw the person bark, just like, Hey, I know you're there. I'm not happy about you being there. Get back in your vehicle type thing. Wow. Um, so that's really, it's, it's really cool. Um, but then there are other places where they're actually very normalized to seeing people on foot and you can actually go up and get pretty close to them on foot and photograph them. And there's obviously some ethical conversations and debate about that, that they don't necessarily need to get into, but, um, and they, they are very used to people in a sense. Um, but they also know, Hey, I don't want to be around like people like that close. Um, and so we'll kind of move off, but you know, when I'm photographing them, I'm, I'm pretty close to them in a vehicle taking, you know, nice low shots of them and, and they don't mind at all. And sometimes the younger pups, they'll kind of come up and they'll look at you and they'll be like, what are you? Like, I, I haven't seen you too often before. And you look kind of strange and kind of like, what's this weird hairless monkey looking thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're really cool. I mean, it's it contrasting totally, you know, to Yellowstone where wolves, you know, they don't want to be by people, you know, at all. And, and that's very good behavior. Um, you know, from them because their their plight is a little bit more. You know, they see people and they know the threats that they pose for them the second they step outside of the park. So it's a little bit different dynamic. Um, but the yeah, the painted wolves. Um, they're they're generally very accepting of you for most of the most of the time. Wow. So when you go to Yellowstone, what's the what is it like for you to have both of those experiences? Because and you sent me a couple of photos as well of the, of the wolves that you've taken in Yellowstone. And you're right, there's, if you just look at the contrast, and by the way, we'll have these photos when we share on social media, when we publish the, the episode. So those of you that hear us talking about these, the, these photos, you'll, you'll get to see them once we, once we post them up. But the photos, uh, you sent me two of, uh, two black wolves that you took, uh, one that was, looks like it's running sort of through uh, a meadow or a valley there. And then there was another one that's on a hillside. And you just look at the difference in obviously distance of where, you know, how far away you are when taking these photos is that, what does that do for you as a photographer to be able to engage 
in multiple different ways with an animal when you're out there. Because if you're able to get closer, obviously, to painted wolves, it might reflect in the photo. Do you ever look at the ones you take in Yellowstone of the wolves that you have here? And does it give you a different sense of feeling or being when you're out there in nature with them? What, what, how, do, how do the experiences differentiate with you when you're putting something together and taking these photos and then seeing the final product? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'll say Yellowstone, I mean, to this day, I still don't have a wolf photo that I'm happy with. Um, and I have photos of wolves, but not one that I'm happy with. And that is, you know, for a reason, you know, they don't get close to you in Yellowstone. And the pictures, you know, if you see photographers who, you know, live around Yellowstone or Grand Teton, you know, they'll have lots of different photos of bears and moose and elk and that sort of thing. But the wolf photos are few and far between just because the sightings of them where they're in photographing distance are just so limited. You're basically hoping either for a carcass that's relatively close to a road or you're hoping for them to cross the road. And again, those aren't necessarily situations you can plan for. You know, when I go to Africa, I can say, hey, like, I know that there may be painted wolves around here. Let's, you know, track them. We can take our vehicle kind of off road. And, you know, if we know, hey, they were here a few days ago, let's follow these tracks and see where they go. And you can kind of track them that way. And I'm sure if you were really crazy and you wanted to go track wolves in the Yellowstone backcountry, you're more than welcome to. But I, I feel like that's kind of, you're, you're, you're chasing a needle in a haystack at that point. Um, so I, it's definitely proven to be harder. Um, but I like that challenge photographically. I mean, Africa it's some, sometimes can feel almost like cheating because you can find there's so many things you can take pictures of and it's right off, you know, you know, you pull up right next to it in a vehicle and boom, you get some awesome shots. And it's, I would say that it's a lot easier to take really good photos there. But in Yellowstone, I think the challenge of finding wolves and getting close to them within, you know, safe distance, a hundred yards or so, um, is a lot harder. Obviously that requires even better gear. Um, then, you know, you can take a, a relatively inexpensive camera set up to Africa and come away with good shots. Um, and Yellowstone, if you want to get good wolf photos, you, you've got to have the gear that can step up to the plate on the different situations. Um, so yeah, kind of those, those two encounters I've had, one was with, uh, um, one of the Wapiti pack, uh, females, she was crossing the road. And again, I caught a photo of her crossing the road and that was the only reason I have a decent photo of her. And, um, the other one I think was uh, from earlier this spring, I caught one of the shrimp lake pack, uh, females and, uh, kind of the one black one. And I just kind of saw her walking. I was just like, what is that? It's like, oh, that's a wolf. And, you know, again, she was probably 300 yards off the road and that was as close as she was going to feel comfortable getting. So, you know, those photos I have, that's about what I have. And uh, I spent, I spent uh, this past October, I spent about a month in the park and all I was chasing was wolves, just nothing but wolves every day, just going to Lamar Valley, hang around there, just sit, see them from a distance. What can we do here? Like, are they going to get close? Are they not? What's kind of the pattern here? And Again, I I have photos of them, but they're just not, you know, those close-ups that everybody really dreams of. So again, that's motivation to just keep coming back and just keep at it. And um, obviously, you know, when I need my fix, I'll go to Africa and get my quick shots of the painted wolves there and just be like, all right, that kind of rejuvenated me and refreshed me. Back to Yellowstone, time for the hard stuff. Mm. So yeah, it's a, it's it's definitely a, a different game in each different place. When you're in Yellowstone, is there any ever feeling of just really being with those animals as opposed to the challenge of getting the photo. I wonder if that's, if there's any, any point where you just, you sort of sit and look around and you're like, wow, I'm just here. And whether I get the shot or not, 
I'm just in this wonderfully different place because it's the extremes that I'm sure that you see between going to Africa and then you come to Yellowstone in terms of the way the setups are. Does that ever cross your mind or is it simply um, just about photographic, you know, getting, getting like the, the, the shots you're looking for? Where does, where does your mind, your body sit sometimes when you're in Yellowstone um, as well oh, yeah. as Africa? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, kind of the, the big thing is that when those, the wolves are kind of off the distance in the valley, which is what most sightings tend to be, um, you realize, hey, there is no photo here. Just like sit and watch and admire the fact that there are wolves here, you know, in a place where they were wiped out entirely. And for generations, there were people who came to Yellowstone and didn't see wolves because there were none left. Um, so obviously you can't help but feel that sort of special connection with them when you realize their story um, and realize that you're seeing this animal here behaving in its natural environment. And, um, and that's, it's a really special thing, especially, um, I know the big thing for me is once the light gets really low and there's no time for photos, sometimes, you know, you have some of the wolves howling um, and you just kind of sit, you put your camera down, you just listen to wolves howling. And you're like, man, this is so cool that I just get to be here and get to hear that. Um, and so that's, that's a really special thing. Um, sometimes I find that harder to do in Africa to just put my camera down. Cause I'm always like, Oh, it's over there. It's over there. I got to get the shot. Um, so I find sometimes it's hard to put my camera down over there, but in Yellowstone, it's very much just like, Hey, just sit, look at, enjoy the moment. And obviously, you know, the camaraderie of everybody around you, everybody knows the wolf watchers that are out there every single day, you know, with their spotting scopes, scanning across the valley, just trying to find something. And, for, you know, a lot of people, once they find wolves, everybody just, you know, shares, you know, their spotting scopes and everybody's looking through and having a great time and just to look at them. And you're like, oh, like how many wolves is it this time? Like what numbers? And I don't know the numbers of all the, I know the packs. I don't know all the numbers of everybody. And they're like, oh, it's, you know, 12, 28. And it's like, okay, well, that's cool. Um, so everybody's just like really excited. And um, I think that camaraderie really kind of enhances that experience. So um, yeah, once, when I'm in a scenario where they're, when they're getting close and I think, oh, like there could be a photo here. I'm, Suddenly I'm like, all right, let's let's stop enjoying the moment and get ready for the shot type thing. But uh, most of the time I'm enjoying the moment more often than not. Yeah. No, I get it. There's always a drive to to get the shot. And it's but it's good, I think, to take that that breath. And you do, you do you just explained it that you take the the moment just to really it seems like you get rejuvenation in two different two different places in two different ways. It's very interesting because, you know what I mean? You go over there and you, you're rejuvenated in Africa by getting the photos. And sometimes in Yellowstone, you're rejuvenated by not getting it. It's just interesting to have that correlation. It's pretty cool that you can have that in both sets of scenarios. When you're talking about the conservation plight, because obviously we, we know a lot of what's going on with wolves in North America, uh, Canada, the United States. How are you able to correlate a lot of what's happening in Africa? Are you able to bring the information and the plight of the painted wolf in Africa here to the United States and, and try and correlate it that way and, or vice versa. Is there any way that you try to share the information and cross pollinate to maybe try and enhance both of the conservation efforts? Is that something that you're trying to do? I don't know what you're, what you're up to in that vein. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, obviously with my experience, you know, seeing and photographing painted wolves and, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting around at a wolf sighting in Yellowstone, you just kind of start to talk to people around you and, um, sometimes that topic of conversation comes up and, you know, especially with the more Yellowstone centric people, everybody's familiar with, you know, the plight of wolves, especially, um, you know, kind of with the um, issues with them getting hunted outside of the park and all the, you know, the different debates that happen around that. Um, and suddenly you suddenly start talking to them about you know, this other animal that is behaves in a very similar fashion as the wolves here in Yellowstone. And they start to learn like, Hey, this is not an isolated, you know, debate. This is happening somewhere across the world. And, you know, it's, you, you kind of start to understand 
all right, maybe the other side isn't quite so, I don't want to say that not so bad, but you start to understand the other side. Like, oh, these livestock people that are having their livestock taken by painted wolves and the livestock people outside of Yellowstone getting their livestock taken by, you know, our gray wolves here. No, they're facing the same problems here. We're having the same conversation. It's it's sort of enlightening to a lot of different people in that sort of way. And I feel like that's kind of, um, it's able to change people's minds and change people's perspectives about how they approach the topic. I think a lot of people who love wolves are very, you know, kind of one on a one track mind. They can't possibly understand why somebody would want to hurt, you know, a beautiful wolf. And obviously we're wolf people, so we're a little bit biased, but there is a conversation to be had on the other, on the other side. Um, and there are valid points on the other side as well that you need to be, you know, considering. So I think opening people's minds to that idea that, you know, it happens in other places as well. It's not isolated to just us, um, I think can be a little bit enlightening. So that's what I try to do. Um, and then kind of on the reverse side, when I'm in Africa, and, you know, sometimes I'll talk about Yellowstone because everybody over there is, you know, they've heard about Yellowstone. It's this big, magical place with so many different animals that are nothing like what we have over here. And, um, you know, people are very interested and fascinated by it. And so... Um, I talked to them about, hey, you know, wolves were wiped out originally in Yellowstone because that's what wildlife management, you know, thought was best for the park was to take out a predator. And in their minds, they're like, that's that's crazy. Why would you like that's like taking out lions here? Like, why would we do that? That makes no sense. Um, and then you kind of explain, you know, wolves were reintroduced and brought back and they kind of brought balance back to the ecosystem and they're really filling in their niche in the way that they were supposed to. And um, it's a, it's probably, I would argue, the reintroduction of wolves is the greatest conservation success story um, in modern history in terms of wildlife conservation. I don't think anything can probably compete with that, bringing back an apex predator into a space um, that is surrounded by people and essentially thriving. Um, and so I think on the African side of things, you know, reintroduction is a very big thing um, in terms of can you find places to bring these animals back in areas where they are now extinct. Um, you know, they look at models like Yellowstone, they say, yeah, like this can be done and this can be done well. Um, again, it involves a lot of community education and involves, you know, enforcement, um, you know, protecting these animals as much as you can and research. Um, and that's, you know, that's really important. The problem, you know, with Africa is that, again, these national parks and the spaces are dwindling. There's not as much space. So where are you supposed to put these animals? Um, so then, you know, again, that kind of conversation, you know, funnels back into, you know, the experience of Yellowstone. So it's, it's really nice to, you know, talk to different groups of people and educate them on both sides. Cause I think, I feel like it's a very enlightening thing to, to kind of share with people. I mean, the conduit that you are just from going across, across the ocean, across the pond, across the ocean to really be able to capture these stories, come back, educate, inform, and, and really just keep doing this thing is vitally important because again, like, as you say, to, enhance the stories for both of these animals in different places across the globe is always going to help because it's always going to figure out, like you say, the plights are very similar. The The way that they are thought of, uh, I don't know the lore behind Painted Wolves. I know you gave a little bit behind that, but it really does seem similar that, again, that big bad wolf mythology or mythos really seems to have infiltrated a lot of communities, especially ones that are doing the work of raising livestock, raising animals to be for food for other people. And whether you have a positive or negative impact with those animals, you're always going to have that conflict. And it's a matter of how we deal with that conflict and can we give the resources and the information to the right people in order to make those conservation efforts happen and help everybody do the things they need to do. And I, I think it's good to have 
people who are taking photographs or sharing the stories because you are sharing stories. And that is, I think, a major thing that a lot of our us as a species has been brought up by, whether it's through paintings, whether it's through things written on a page, and now via image, via imagery, whether it's movies or photographs, that we tell these stories so that it can be shared more globally. And so that people can see how wonderful and beautiful that these animals are and that they do have a place on on the planet, wherever it may be, whether it's Africa or North America. If you were to give somebody a starter guide, what's the best place for them to learn about African painted wolves and to really, you know, if they want to go over, if they want to see them, what's what's something that they can look to other than obviously your your photography there because you do have some some beautiful photos there. What's a good resource for them to understand the conservation effort? Where can they go to really find some information about either how to help or to really just get to know this animal a little bit more and realizing that it, it has similar numbers to the wolves here in the United States? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, the, the the biased part of my answer would be uh, just just go go out there, man. Just go find them. Go see them. Um, obviously, not everybody's able to do that for one reason or another. But uh, yeah, see, obviously seeing them in person and, and giving, you know, whatever funding you can to the local communities that are most impacted and the, and the local national parks is probably the most direct way to do it. Um, but, you know, for a long period of time, I, I knew kind of offhand what these animals were, but I didn't really know too much about them. Um, about five years or so, there was this BBC documentary called uh, Dynasties. Um, and one of the episodes, they, they generally focus on a species of animal and they kind of, you know, chronicle, you know, that family's dynamics and the history and all that. And one of the episodes they had was on painted wolves. And, um, I remember watching that episode and just being captivated. And to this day, I think it is probably the best wildlife documentary I've ever seen in my life. Um, if you haven't seen it out there, go watch it. It, it is nonstop. I'm talking like Game of Thrones level, like political drama from top to bottom with wild animals and you're just like man i had no idea that these animals live these sorts of complex lives like i didn't realize you know obviously wildlife documentaries are kind of have fluff drama at times but this is all just 100 percent just raw footage and i since watching that i was like wow like i want to just learn everything i can about these animals and um you know obviously there's so much you know literature out there that you can consume online, you know, other photographers who, you know, probably take much better photos than me have, you know, media out there as well that kind of document their plight. But uh, yeah, I think uh, if there's ways that people can um, visit these parks, you know, if you can find a way to get out to Africa and you can see these animals in their natural environment and you can document them and share their stories, I think that's probably just the best way you can do it. And, you know, there's lots of different conservation groups you can meet on the ground and you can donate to them. I know, you know, uh, painted wolf conservation is a big one. I know like Zambia carnivore project is another one that focuses on, you know, wildlife in Zambia, particularly there's tons of, you know, world wildlife foundation. There's tons of different groups that are providing funding towards that. But I think having those sort of intimate encounters makes it a little bit different. It's a lot of similar to how people feel about wolves. You know, you have people who hate wolves. They come out to Yellowstone, they see them just interacting in their natural environment. And then, you know, it kind of changes their mind a little bit. Um, and, uh, I, I feel kind of the same way about the paintables. If you can get out there and you can see them and you'd like, wow, these animals, they have to, you know, constantly be worrying about, you know, lions coming and getting, af- getting after them. How are they supposed to, you know, hunt and eat and feed their pups? And you just realize like, wow, like these animals live incredible lives. Um, and just seeing them just makes you want to just 
keep going back. And I, I literally plan most of my trips now back to Africa with the intention of finding them in one way or the other. Um, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, they're, they're big into, you know, their drafts, their elephants and all that, but I, I literally plan specific trips just to go and try and find them, um, in some capacity. They, they've totally, you know, taken over my life. They're, they've become an addiction just to find them and see them and see, you know, how does this pack and this country act differently in this pack and that country. And, um, I feel like once people see them, they, maybe that bug will bite them too. That's great. And listen, everybody who's hearing that will, will have the links for those, those certain, Obviously, for for Philip's website, for his photos, we're going to share for those organizations. If you're you're interested in helping, um, and obviously any other, what other, what Yellowstone, uh, uh, what organizations here do you do you recommend to? I know we've we've we talk about Yellowstone a lot, but what are some of the ones that you really really like and uh, and you know that help out the the gray wolves here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think uh, Yellowstone Forever is kind of, you know, the big one around the park, and they do a lot of great work. Um, I also find um, not necessarily just, you know, a specific group or anything, but going on like a wolf watching tour, you know, like the Yellowstone, you know, the wolf tracking groups, um, people who just can go and support these communities and provide them jobs and say, hey, these animals have value if they're alive. I mean, they provide millions and millions, I, I don't know the exact number, but they provide millions of dollars of revenue to local communities of people who come to Yellowstone specifically to see wolves. I mean, I'm one of those people that I, I had never been to Yellowstone before, but my main drive to going to Yellowstone was to see wolves. And if the wolves were not there, I don't know if I would have that same interest to going into the park. So, you know, the money that I spend, you know, when I stay at accommodations, when I'm eating, you know, at restaurants and I'm essentially funding wolf protection and teaching these communities that yes, like you can get business by having wolves here. Um, especially, specifically when you go on like these wolf watching tours, it's like, Hey, this is a local guy who may have decided to just be a hunter and, you know, sit at home and he'd be quite content to go shoot a wolf, but now you're giving him a job and he can work as, you know, as a tour guide and educate other people about wolves. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that is probably the most impactful that you can do. Um, it's just, you know, provide funding to these communities in any way that you can and teach them the value of having these animals alive. I agree with you. My last question for you, Philip, is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Uh, I'll, 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 I'll put a little two-parter in there. I'll say in danger. Um, specifically, I, I think that we look at the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone and we hear about such a success. I think that's where a lot of people leave the conversation. We brought them back. They hear now. It's great. Does not make everybody so happy. And they kind of tune out or they're not so familiar with, you know, the conflicts that's still happening. They don't know about them getting delisted and, you know, all the wolves that got, you know, wiped out, I think over the past year or so, or two years ago. Um, and they just think, you know, oh, they're here and, and that's fine. And so we take our foot off the gas a little bit. And that's just not something we can do. We can't just reach a sustainable level with wolves. We have to make sure that their protection is constantly being fought for. Um, they always need to have advocates out there, you know, not just photographically, but in politics, um, in policy. Um, I, I think that's something that uh, we can never forget that they are still constantly in danger, even if we brought them back and um, there is no safe point for a wild animal at this point, uh, given, you know, this complex societies that we live in. And the same goes for painted wolves. You know, there are so few of them left. They are very much in danger of going extinct um, if we cannot protect them and we cannot protect the spaces that they need to, you know, call their habitats and continue to grow. Um, so it's it's a situation where we need to be very vigilant um, and we constantly need to be advocating for them because they can't advocate for themselves. Beautiful words. Uh, Philip Scrimshaw, thank you so much for giving your time, your effort, 
for the photos that you're taking and for the information you're bringing literally from continent to continent. Really appreciate what you're doing and, and all the stuff that you're involved in. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Appreciate it and getting that message out there. Yeah, absolutely. Just stick around for one more minute. How's to you all out there? And we'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer.